I wasn't sure Bob was going to sit down. I thought he got so used to being up here, he might just want to preach. That would have been all right. Good morning to everyone. We're glad that you're here. We are finishing up a series this morning uh, called In a World of Faithlessness. And so for the past few months, we have been looking at this topic from different perspectives in Scripture and and, and what it means for a Christian to live in a world where, where people don't have the kind of faith that they should. Or where people don't have faith at all. And so we want to wrap this lesson series up this morning with a sermon called Keep the Faith. And it is from directly from the text that we just read this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-8. through 8. So if you have your Bible, we will continue all morning in that chapter together and take the lessons that we learn from that. And I think what we'll find in this passage is we're going to find three reasons to keep the faith and one recipe for how to do that. And so follow along with me in, in God's Word as we study that together this morning. Here's the first reason why you and I need to keep the faith in a world of faithlessness, and that is that there is going to be a reckoning. There is going to be a reckoning. Paul says in this first verse, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Now what Paul says here in this first verse is, is in reference to this reckoning that we're talking about. And this is a very serious thing that Paul mentions here. The dictionary defines reckoning as the settlement of accounts or an accounting for things received or done, which is exactly the way that the New Testament describes and speaks of the coming day of judgment, isn't it? That there is coming an actual day on which the the deeds and the words and even the thoughts that you and I have in our lives will be brought into judgment. We will give an account for those things. Matthew 12, 36, Hebrews 4, 13, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, and so forth. And so Paul wants to remind Timothy of this. That there is coming a reckoning, an accounting, a judgment. The phrase that he uses here, I I charge you in the English standard, or in the New American standard, I solemnly charge you. That's courtroom language. And it literally means to exhort with authority in matters of extraordinary importance frequently with reference to higher powers and suggestion of peril or danger to solemnly warn someone. And that's what Paul is doing. I am charging you, Timothy. I am solemnly warning you about something. This phrase, this this Greek phrase is the same one that's used by the rich man, you'll remember in Luke chapter 16. The same phrase used who spoke to Father Abraham from the torment of Hades and said, I beg you, Father Abraham, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, solemnly charge them, warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. This is a very serious thing that Paul is talking about. And when Paul says, I solemnly charge you, it has a great 
link and reference to what he's going to say uh, in verses 2 and 5, certainly, but it also would relate to what Paul is saying about this reckoning that he mentions. This charge is given in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So the concept of a coming judgment for those of us who are alive at this time and for those who have died is an often repeated concept in the New Testament. This judgment will be carried out by Christ Jesus Himself. John 5, 22, 28 and 29, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and so on. And the seriousness of it cannot be overstated. To remind you this morning that a judgment, a reckoning is coming, is probably something that we should remind ourselves of every day, don't you think? We're going to give an account. We're going to stand before God and answer for everything. And you can see this seriousness of this judgment in Paul's words to the Philippians in the context of that coming reckoning when he says, I need you to work out your own salvation with what? Chapter 2, verse 12, with fear and trembling. It's a very serious thing that God and Christ Jesus specifically is going to come and judge us one day. There's not going to be any skeptics on that day. There will be no scoffers. There will be no sharp-tongued critics of Christ on the day of reckoning. There will be bent knees and there will be an audible acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2 verses 10 and 11. It's serious, isn't it? This coming reckoning. It's also sure and certain the coming judgment may be in known of its, uh, in terms of its timing, according to Mark 13, verse 32. Only the Father knows when it will happen. But it's an absolute certainty because Paul says, I, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom. It emphasizes the certainty. He will appear again. He is the King. He is the true judge. He has fixed a day, Acts 17, 31, on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Paul said that to the Athenians in Acts 17, verse 31. As Paul wrote to the Romans, quoting from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to Me, and every tongue shall confess to God, and each of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 14, 11, and 12. The Hebrews writer put it this way, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. As Roper put it in his commentary on the book of 2 Timothy, Paul was reminding Timothy that he was standing in the presence of his judge and king who could come any time and ask for an accounting. You know what this feels like if you have a boss. Or if your parents have told you, you're a young person, your parents have told you to do something and they're going to come back and check on you later. You know what it, what it feels like when, when there's going to be an accounting. You don't know when. But somebody's going to hold me accountable for what I'm doing. And we need to prepare for that as Christians. There will be a reckoning. I charge you solemnly. I warn you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom. I want to read from a poem that I found called The Reckoning by Robert W. Service. I thought this was a good way to put this. 
he writes it this way. It's great to go out every night on fun or pleasure bent, to wear your glad rags always and to never save a cent, to drift along regardless, have a good time every trip, to hit the high spots sometimes and to let your chances slip, to know you're acting foolish yet go on fooling still till nature calls a showdown and you have to pay the bill. Time has got a little bill. Get wise while yet you may, for the debit side's increasing in a most alarming way. The things you had no right to do, the things you should have done, they're all put down. It's up to you to pay for every one. So eat, drink, and be merry. Have a good time, if you will, but God help you when the time comes and you foot the bill. Well, there's a lot of, of truth in that little poem, isn't there? But maybe Solomon said it even more clearly. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. He says later on in chapter 12, verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. There is a reckoning coming. And Paul begins this text with a reminder to Timothy, a solemn, serious, certain reminder that God will judge every single one of us. Are you ready for that judgment? Before we go any further this morning, are you ready for that? Are you, are you ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ Jesus and give an accounting of your life? If you're not, let me encourage you to do whatever it takes to, to make yourself ready for that certain and sure and serious accounting. So if we want to keep the faith, we've got to remember this. This helps us to keep the faith, doesn't it? I'm going to stand before God, so, so I, I certainly want to do what He says while I'm alive here on this earth. There's also been a relaxing. Here's reason number two to keep the faith. There's been a relaxing that has taken place. And Paul predicted it here in this letter. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, if you take your Bible and flip back to chapter 3 of this same letter, this is not their only problem. This is not the, even the real problem with this group of people. Notice what he says in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This behavior in chapter 4 is part of what happens when people become lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the really scary part. Having the appearance of godliness... All of these people with all of these sins in their lives have the appearance of godliness. Isn't that scary? They have the appearance of godliness, but they are denying its power. So the outward relaxation of religion that we're going to talk about in chapter 4 is the result of an internal rebellion against God. I don't have to do what God says. I want to do what I want to do, but I still want to look like I'm doing what God says. Well, that's a relaxation. That's a, a rebellion that's taking place in this group of people that Paul is warning Timothy about. And Paul spoke of this relaxation of, as something that was coming in the future. Can you and I agree that we have long since 
lived in this relaxed state of religion? Could we all agree that, that this, has, this has already come long ago? We are in the midst of the relaxation of religion. What, what does Paul say here exactly? What does it mean for us? He says people will not endure. There's a time coming when people just won't endure. Okay, what does that mean? The word translated endure literally means to regard with tolerance, to, to bear up with, to, to put up with. There's, a, there's coming a time when people just won't put up with something. Hebrews 13.22 uses the same word. The Hebrews writer says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. I do want you to put up with my word of exhortation. But Paul says to Timothy, there's coming a time when people just won't put up with what? What will they not put up with? Sound teaching. There's coming a time, Timothy, when people just will not tolerate, they will not endure, they will not bear up under, they won't put up with sound teaching. And what does that mean? Is that my favorite part of the Bible that, that I think everybody ought to be listening to? Or, or is that a certain list of things that, that only includes the things that I think ought to be on the list? No, the concept here is incredibly broad when we, when we really think of what these words mean. The word translated sound literally means to be in good physical health, to be healthy, to be free from error or to be correct. So let me ask you a question. How much of this is sound? How, how much of God's Word is healthy and, and good and, and free from error and correct? Well, all of it is, isn't it? So we, we make a grave mistake when we say, well, sound teaching is A, B, or C. Well, yeah, sure it is. But so is the rest of the alphabet, right? All of the Bible is what we need in our lives. This does not merely apply to a short list of, of for example, uh, biblical de teachings that denominational Christianity has decided to omit or twist or change completely. Now it includes all of that. Do not hear me wrong. All of those things would be included in sound teaching. But everything else is included too, doesn't it? It's all sound. If there's any of it, listen to this, if there's any part of God's Word that you and I just won't put up with anymore, are you listening? If there's any part of God's Word that you and I just won't tolerate anymore, we're tired of hearing it. I don't want to hear another lesson on that. Well, we fall into this same category of people. We might not think that we do, but if, but if we are sick of certain parts of God's Word, we need to be very careful. We, balance is important, okay? Acts 20, verse 27, teach the whole counsel of God. Preachers have to be careful with, with how they preach and teach and what they preach and teach, certainly. But if they're teaching something that comes from God's Word, it's sound. If they haven't messed it up, if they haven't twisted it, if they haven't corrupted it, then, then it's something that all of us need to listen to. There are appropriate times to focus and bear down on a particular topic or section of Scripture, aren't there? And I think I speak for everybody who sincerely wants to preach the Word of God in the best way possible, that we're trying to do this. We're very careful and considerate and prayerful of what we say and how we say it, and we pray that God gives us wisdom to say what needs to be said, but guess what? We're not inspired. God does not appear to, to anybody who preaches from this pulpit uh, on Monday and say, well, here's your lesson 
for Sunday. He just does not do that. And so to the best of our ability, we are trying to to say what needs to be said from God's word in an accurate and healthy and sound way. We don't always do the best job of that. And I'll be the first to tell you that. But we need to be careful uh, as people who listen to God's word on a regular basis. If we hear ourselves saying things like, I just don't like negative lessons. Well, guess what? Nobody does. Nobody likes them. But there are some in this book, aren't there? I think we talk too much about fill in the blank. I think we talk too much about service and evangelism. I think we talk too much about A, B, or C. Okay, well maybe we do, but but if it's true, if it comes from God's Word, then it's sound. I'm tired of hearing lessons about whatever. If they don't, you know, if they don't stop preaching about fill in the blank, I think I'll just go somewhere else. I suppose you can and could, but but remember this passage. And remember that that this might just apply to you and me if that's our attitude. I I just won't put up with that anymore. No, it's not wrong. Yes, I understand he was quoting Scripture. I get it, but I just don't want to hear that anymore. Well, that's very dangerous, isn't it? It's dangerous for me and it's dangerous for you and it's dangerous evidently uh, for everyone that's going to sit and listen to God's Word proclaimed. So, So they won't endure sound teaching of whatever variety we're talking about here. But what is it that they do have? They have, Paul says, itching ears. I actually have ears that itch. This is a really weird thing for me. So I actually have itching ears. So maybe sometimes I have it in two ways. But what does this mean? That they have itching ears. This is an interesting word here. It means wanting to have their ears tickled. I can't imagine. Can you? I don't want to have anything tickled. But it also means curiosity that looks for interesting and juicy bits of information. That makes more sense, doesn't it? Tell me something interesting. Tell tell me something I haven't heard before. Tell me something that I can go tell somebody else and it'll create a great conversation. Another Greek lexicon defines it as desirous of hearing something pleasant. Well, now we're getting a little closer to what we all want, right? I mean, I've actually heard people say, I don't like hearing uh, difficult sermons when I come to church. I come to church to be encouraged and to, and to be lifted up. And I understand that. But what if God has another plan? And, and I say, well, I just don't want to hear that. I want my ears to be tickled. Well, we've, we've, we've seen this coming for a long time. God has. God says these, these people want to hear what they want to hear. And by the way, the business of tickling ears is big business, isn't it? We live in a a, a world of celebrity pastors who make millions of dollars a year doing what? Tickling ears. Telling people exactly what they want to hear and nothing that they don't want to hear. But don't think, just please don't think that that could not find its way into our walls. Because we're all tempted as human beings to want to hear something pleasant, aren't we? I'd rather hear something pleasant than something unpleasant, wouldn't you? Sure. But when that becomes the the reason why I'm listening to a certain preacher or or a certain podcast or whatever, I need to be be very careful. They have itching ears, and what are they going to do, Paul? They're going to accumulate for themselves. Heap 
to themselves, the King James says. New Living says they're going to look for teachers. The NIV says they will gather around them a great number of teachers. The Christian Standard Bible says they will multiply teachers for themselves. What is he saying here? That that there will be no shortage of teachers out there who are willing to tickle ears. And there are lots of people who will flock to their congregations, who will share their blog posts, who will download their podcasts so that they don't have to listen to anyone who doesn't tell them something juicy or pleasant or that will suit their own passions. That's what Paul says next. Suit their own passions. The King James says, after their own lusts. The New King James says, according to their own desires. So the criteria here is not, what does God say on this subject? No, the criteria is, what sounds good to me? What do I need? What would I like to hear today? And again, have we been trained to be this way in the culture in which we live? Have we been trained to say, God, whatever you have to say to me today, I will listen? No, we have not. We have been trained to change the channel. We've been trained to go somewhere else. Paul says they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. These people are making a decision. Turn away from what is true. Turn and focus on something less than that. One definition of this word is actually a medical term used of dislocated limbs. They are dislocating themselves from the truth. Now they may be relaxed. They may be happy. They may be hearing juicy and pleasant lessons seven days a week, but they have turned away from the one thing, pleasant or otherwise, that can set them free, according to John 8, 32. The 2021 Gallup poll revealed that 75% of Americans identify with a specific religious faith. Three out of four. Now that number's gone down quite a bit over the last 20 or 30 years, but still, most Americans identify with a specific religious faith. But you start digging a little deeper. Only 49% of those people say that their religion is very important. Only only half of those people say it's very important. The rest of them say, well, it's fairly important or not very important. And dig a little deeper. Fewer Americans, 29% say that they have actually attended church or synagogue or mosque or temple in the past seven days. In other words, most of us are very religious, but it's a pretty relaxed version of that religion in this country. That's just the way that Americans live. According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, there are approximately 41,000 Christian denominations and organizations in the world today. So what does that mean? It's just like a giant golden corral buffet, isn't it? Yeah, I'm more relaxed in my religion, which means that if I don't like what I see or what I hear, I'll look among all these other thousands, tens of thousands of options, and I'll find what I'm looking for. And we will, won't we? According to a LifeWay research study, and we talked about this in in Mike's class this morning, more than half of Americans, religious people by the way, remember, said they had read little or none of the Bible. 
And these are people who, who claim religious affiliation, but it's really not that important. That's, that's the picture in the country that we live in. The same study revealed only 30% of church-going adults under the age of 50 read the Bible every day. So we got to kind of ask ourselves some questions here. Have we become too relaxed in our practice of Christianity? Have we become too relaxed in our approach towards God's Word, whether it's privately while we have it open in front of us or whether somebody else is preaching or teaching it? Have we become a little too relaxed, a little too choosy, selective, intolerant of certain parts of God's Word? Have we begun to accumulate or heap or download a group of teachers who will just suit our own desires? By the way, let me make this point. What do we usually call our, our desires? We call them needs. And, and that's the most popular word in religion. Well, these, this group of people is meeting my what? They're meeting my needs. Well, let's just say that, that for what it is. They're, they're fulfilling my desires. Now, do we all have needs? Absolutely. I'm not saying that we don't. But when that is the reason why we do what we do in our religion, then we have become more relaxed than we should. I thought this was interesting. Based on some ratings and reviews and subscribers and some other things, the number two religious podcast on Apple Podcasts right now is the Joel Osteen Podcast. Y'all know Joel? Joel is such an easy target. I hate to even put his picture up here, but here he is. And Joel doesn't mind, trust me, because the more we talk about Joel, the more these books he'll sell. And here are some of the titles of Joel Osteen's books. He's literally rich and famous for telling people what? For telling them what they want to hear. These are the titles of some of his books. Your greater is coming. Rule your day. You are stronger than you think. The abundance mindset. Empty out the negative. I'm tempted to do my impression of Joel, but I'm not going to do it today. You can, you will, your best life now, break out, become a better you and my personal favorite every day of Friday. Joel, have you figured out how to do that? I might read that one. Every day of Friday. You notice what the common denominator in all of these best-selling million-dollar books is? It's you. What do you need today? How can I help you? What do your ears want to hear? Number two religious podcast in the country. Now, maybe it's encouraging to you, at least a little bit, that the number one podcast on the list is called The Bible in a Year. It's a little more encouraging. Now, it's a Catholic podcast, but it is refreshing to know that there's at least a lot of people who would still rather hear what the Bible has to say than what Joel Osteen has to say. That's encouraging, at least. But, but here's what we're saying. As Paul puts it here, there has been a relaxing towards the truth of God's Word. So let's you and I, if we want to keep the faith, let's you and I double our efforts to make sure that we are not doing that. That we didn't come here to relax. We came here to sit at the feet of whatever God has to tell us today and listen and obey it. Nothing more and nothing less. So reason number two, there has been a relaxing. And Paul talks about that in this passage. Reason number three, there will be a reward. There will be a reward. That makes us perk up a little bit, right? There's going to be a reward. Then maybe I can try a little harder. Verse eight, henceforth there is laid up for me. We're skipping around. We'll come back to the other verses. There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. When Paul says henceforth, what he means is in the future, uh, finally, from now on, or, or therefore, this is going to happen. Because of what I've said, this is true. There is laid up for me. The word used here means to be laid away, laid by, reserved and awaiting him. To reserve as award or recompense. The, the same word is used in Colossians 1.5. That it, it, it belongs to you. It's waiting for you. Sometimes I'll, I'll uh, go on a trip without the family, without the kids, and, and I'll buy them something. Moms, dads, you probably have done this. You, you buy them something, you're thinking about them, and, and maybe you get on the phone with them that day and you say, I bought you something. And boy, they just light up. They don't even have to know what it is, do they? And, and they know that, that you're going to be gone for a few more days, but that, that award, that, that gift is just waiting. It already belongs to them. And they just can't wait. They don't even want to see you when you get home, by the way. Where is my gift? Give it to me. I've been waiting for four days. But, but they, they, they have that attitude, that childlike attitude. You bought me something. It's mine. I can have it. I just have to wait. This is amazing. This is what Paul is saying. Heaven is waiting for me. There, there is a reward for me with my name on it. Just waiting in heaven for me. A crown of righteousness. I know that doesn't sound all that appealing. I don't even like to wear ball hats. I don't want anything on my head. But the crown of righteousness is something that I, that I want very much. And you probably do too. Whether it's a reference to a, a permanent, perfect state of righteousness or our standing or status before God, or whether it's just a reference to the, the reward that we're going to receive for being righteous, the meaning is clear. Paul felt confident. I'm going to keep the faith because there will be a reward. And, and, and sometimes we read and we think, well, man, I wish I was Paul. I wish I was that good. I wish I'd done all the good things that Paul had done so I could get that reward. Well, listen to what he says. It's not just for me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Now, this is really important. Okay, listen to this part. John, 1 John 5.13 tells us, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I want you to have confidence. I want you to know that this is waiting for you. God has reserved this in heaven for you. Paul stated in no less than three places in his letters that the salvation of the faithful follower of Jesus is guaranteed. Guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.22 5, 5, until we acquire possession of it, Ephesians 1.14. It's absolutely guaranteed. But what does it mean to love His appearing? Because that's who it's for. What does it mean to love His appearing? I like what Wayne Jackson said about this. He said, those who have loved His appearing are the same ones who have fought the good fight, finished the course, and kept the faith. This is a divine commentary on what it means to love His appearing. Love Agapao is an action word. It is the love of commitment, dedication, and service. I think that's right, don't you? Another commentator put it this way. 
To love Christ's appearing is to look forward to it with great anticipation. It signifies a longing or desire which causes one to strive for something. In this verse, agapao is used in the perfect tense which expresses the present and permanent result of past action. It could be translated, those who have loved and who do love His appearing. So those who love His appearing, those who are, who are striving to please Him now and who are looking forward with great anticipation to His second coming can have confidence in their salvation. But the reason why some Christians are not confident, and this has included me in, in many times in my life, is, is in regards to their salvation. It's because it's not, it's not because it's not possible. It's not because we can't be confident. It's not because God doesn't want us to be. It's because, listen to this, we're so often living for other things and serving ourselves and hoping for rewards in this life. And see, when we allow ourselves to fall in love with this world and our greatest joys and dreams and hopes are rooted here, we're not going to have confidence about eternity. That's not how it works. In fact, a close examination of what it means to keep the faith in this text will reveal that this casual and cultural and relaxed approach to Christianity is as unscriptural as anything else that we might want to talk about. It's not right. And it's the reason why so many people don't have any confidence in their salvation. Because they're practicing a religion that's, that's not scriptural. And you can do that, by the way, in a church that's worshiping scripturally. Did you know that? You can. So what's the recipe? Because there's a recipe for keeping the faith that's found in this passage. It's not the only one, but it's a good one. What is it that precedes that word henceforth or therefore in, in, in verse 8? Let's take a look at this recipe that Paul gives and this lesson will be yours. Preach the word. Paul says to Timothy, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, Timothy was a preacher. I understand that. And a lot of us here this morning are not. But I believe there are some important principles here in regard to what it means to keep the faith. And could I put it this way? If, if you're a preacher, if you're someone who ever preaches or teaches, then do that in the right way. And if you're not, then let those people do that in the right way. Would that be a fair, modern translation of what Paul just said? If you're someone who preaches or teaches, do that in the right way. If you're someone who listens to those people, let them do that. Allow them to do that. The reason why some preachers have stopped doing the things that Paul says here is because it doesn't tickle many ears when you do this. It's not very pleasant. And believe me when I tell you, it's not any more pleasant for preachers uh, to teach and preach unpleasant things than it is for the rest of us to listen to them. It's difficult to have complete patience in teaching while you're doing those things. Paul has spoken about this several times already in this letter to Timothy, specifically about his preaching duties and thereby to every preacher, but He's talking to all of us too. This, it's your responsibility to, to let this man do his job. Listen to him. Because he's speaking for God, not for himself. So the preachers who abandon these mandates, and there are lots of them, who would just abandon these mandates, they're not going to do this. It's not much fun. It doesn't make much money. 
They'll, have, they'll be held accountable for that. But on the other side of that coin are the people who won't accept reproof and rebuke and exhortation. They're going to be held accountable as well, aren't they? So on behalf of all of the people who preach, it, it's a difficult task to do what Paul says here. It really is tricky and difficult. It's not always pleasant or easy or well received. And I thank you here at Dalreda because you make this easier. You really do. There's a lot of places you can't preach this very sermon. It's just too hard to hear. So thank you for allowing God's Word to be spoken and preached here at Dalreda. Preachers are to be like needles of compasses, W.F. Besser said, which always point in the same direction regardless of weather conditions or the position of the instrument. Preachers are not to be like weather vanes, letting the wind of popular opinion and the spirit of the times turn them about. I appreciate our elders for allowing everyone who stands in this pulpit to do this very thing. And I hope that all of us remember that when we are in the pews listening to God's Word, it's our responsibility to allow that to happen, to accept that with humility, and to obey God. Listen to what he says in this, this next verse. As for you, Timothy, you know, there's coming a time when people won't, won't put up with God's Word, but, but as for you, always be sober-minded, Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Again, talking to a preacher, but what is there here for you and I? What does it mean to be sober-minded? It means to be, be calm and collected in spirit, to be temperate, to be circumspect, to be well-balanced, to be self-controlled. The NIV says it, and I kind of like this, keep your head in all situations. Keep, keep your head have some perspective. Be alert. Be aware. Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering in whatever form it may come. Do you have suffering in your life? Because you're a Christian, do you have some of that? Whatever it might look like. I don't know what that might look like, but don't quit because of that. Endure that. Keep going. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For Timothy, this was very specific. But let me tell you something. It's very specific for you and me too because we all have a ministry. Or we should. And what Paul is saying is that you need to keep doing that. You need to do the work. You need, you need to fill up your ministry. In the parable of the talents, how many servants were expected to do nothing by their master? Well, you're off the hook because you're not good at anything. I'm not giving you any talents. I mean, everybody knows that you're the worst servant that we have. You just sit still and don't get in anybody's way. Well, there aren't any of those. Everyone has got ability. Everyone has been giving something by the Master. So we all share some of the same ministries, don't we? Evangelism, encouragement, exhortation, benevolence. We, we have to do that work together. And so many here at Dalreda are so busy with that work that God has given us to do, you are to be commended and encouraged for that. Keep doing the work. Keep fulfilling those ministries. That, that food ministry that Chris talked about, boy, so many people fulfilling day after day that ministry. Thank you for doing that. That's powerful work. That's great work. Keep doing it. For those of us who might not have found what that work is in our lives, we need to understand that we may not be keeping the faith in the same way that Paul described it. We need to find something to do. 
We need to find some kind of work to be involved in. And we need to fulfill that ministry. Don't quit. Paul said to Timothy in this same letter, chapter 1, verse 6, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Evidently, Timothy had, had stopped. And Timothy had let some things go cold. He'd been given a particular gift and he had allowed it to, to go dormant. And the word translated fulfill means carry that out to the end. Accomplish what you set out to do. Don't leave your ministry half finished. Don't quit when it gets difficult. Don't give up when things just don't seem to be working. Listen to this. Every single person here, there are souls that likely depend on the ministry that you have been called to do. I'm talking to every one of you. There are souls that depend on the ministry that you and only you have been called to do. So please keep doing it. That's keeping the faith. That's what Paul says. He keeps on here. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now in verse 6, he seems to be reflecting on the fact that he's about to leave this life. Don't you think? I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. But let me reflect back on my life. And boy, don't you want to be able to reflect back in the same way that he did. I have fought. The word here is agonizomai, and it means to enter a contest, to contend with adversaries, to fight, to struggle with difficulties and dangers, to endeavor with strenuous zeal, to strive. I, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. The verb here means to bring to a close, to finish, to end, to perform, to execute, to carry out the contents of a command. To perform the last act which completes a process. I did that. I have finished the race. I've completed everything that God told me to do. I have therefore kept the faith. Keep is a verb as well, by the way. It means to attend to carefully. To take care of. To guard. To keep in the state in which it is. God gave me something. And I've kept it. Exactly the way that He told me to. These words, fought, finished, kept, they're not passive, they're all verbs. They're all difficult. They're not the equivalent of going to a church building and listening to some sermons and singing some songs and generally being a good person. That's not what Paul said. And if you knew that your life was almost over, is this how you and I would describe it? Have we fought? Have we finished? Have we held on to the one thing that we've got to make sure that we hold on to? In a world of faithlessness, keep the faith. Keep the faith. Why? Because there's a reckoning coming. Because there has been a relaxation of religion. Because there is a reward waiting. Well, how do I do that? Well, contend with your adversaries. Struggle against your difficulties. Execute, complete, and fulfill your responsibilities. And above all things that are precious to you, attend carefully to and preserve your faith in Jesus Christ. Live for Him, serve Him, obey Him, and trust completely in Him. And at the end of our lives, we'll be able to say the same things that Paul said, and we will have that award, that reward, waiting for us in heaven.
Have you kept the faith this morning? We could all do it better, right? We could all do a better job of that, but but maybe you have not kept the faith. Maybe you are far from keeping the faith this morning and something brought you to this building. I don't know what it might have been, but maybe you need some help this morning and maybe you need some, some prayer or some study or some love. Whatever you might need, I want you to know this is a group of people who loves God and loves you and is here to help you. We don't just say this because it's time for me to stop talking. This is a real invitation. And if you have a need, please let us know what it is. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're not obeyed the gospel, you don't have that faith in Jesus Christ, at least not the kind that will save you from your sins, you can believe in Christ this very morning, repent of those sins, and be buried with Him in baptism for the forgiveness of those sins, and you can walk out of here with the same kind of faith that Paul had. And you can keep it for the rest of your life. So whatever your need might be, if we could help you in any way, would you let us know as we stand and sing?